Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Luther's small catechism. I'm sorry I'm running a little bit late, and uh, happy Mother's Day as well. It is Mother's Day. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today, and of course, uh, the Lord's Supper, the thing about this teaching, even though it's quite public and quite open for the world to examine, is if you're not baptized, if you don't believe in Christ, if you haven't already submitted yourself to his word and said his word is true, then this teaching really isn't for you, and it's not likely to make a lot of sense to you. And so I want to make that preface simply because this is one of the highest and also one of the most intimate mysteries of the Christian faith, the Lord's Supper. So we will get into that um, as the Catechism lays it before us. But before we do, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Let's begin in the front of your catechism. And if you are missing one, we have... Looks like that side's already been raided. This side has some. And I assure you, if you sneak up along the side, no one on the World Wide Web will see you. So if you do need to grab a catechism, feel free to do that. And again, just by way of really quick review, a catechism is a way of taking the whole depth and breadth of the scriptures and simplifying it down into its most important parts, the parts that the head of the household would teach his household. It's taking the fundamental doctrines of Christianity and driving them forward. Catechisms are, oh, about 1900 years old. And this one comes to us out of the Reformation. There's nothing that says we have to have this one, but it is a great catechism, uh, a great echoing forward of what the Holy Scriptures themselves speak. Now, in the small catechism, Again, we're just going to be at the front, so that will put us at page, that's baptism, what's the page, does anyone, there it is, 28, 28. Okay, so the first thing we're going to note is the picture above, what do we see there? Front and center is the? The cross uh, with the body of Jesus hanging from it. And we can see the nails very faintly in his hands. We can see on his head the crown of thorns. We can see his body and we can see those things which in reality drew out his blood. Behind the crucifix, almost even melded in with it as you look to the base. What do you see behind it? The chalice, the cup. So Jesus says um, in taking the cup, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, um, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So 
the shedding of his blood on the cross is made present to us in the cup, his cup given to us freely. And that that singularity of the cup isn't just a historical reality that at the Lord's Supper on the night when he was betrayed, he took the cup, but there's also theological import to that, to that cup being Jesus' cup. We'll talk more about that as we go forward. But that's why the cup is front and center, because it is that cup is the New Testament in his blood. It's always a fun question to ask confirmands when we get to this section, what is the New Testament? And without fail, they point to the books at the end of the Bible as if I've suddenly lost my mind. And I say, okay, I play along and I say, okay, well, where in the books at the end of your Bible does it say that the New Testament is these books? Because it doesn't. But if you ask the New Testament, what is the New Testament? If you ask those books at the end of your Bible, what is the New Testament? You're going to get two answers, which, is, which are really just one answer. The New Testament is the blood that Christ sheds on the cross, and that blood poured into his chalice and poured out for us Christians to eat and to drink for the, to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the New Testament, according to those books at the end of your Bible. So you can see why the chalice is front and center. And then what do you see off to the left and to the right? Grapes, Grapes, because it is uh, wine that he takes and says, this is my blood. And what on the other side? Yeah, wheat, because he takes bread and said, this bread is my body. So you see all of these things here, and of course you have some deeper themes rolling around in your mind. We're on a basic class and a basic track today, so I won't go into it, but you've got themes of a transformed and transfigured creation. That that which is common earthly bread becomes something holy and united with Christ. That which is common earthly grapes or wine becomes something holy and united with Christ. You have a foreshadowing of the transformation and transfiguration of the new, of this earth into the new heavens and the new earth, permeated with the presence of Christ. Okay. Uh, What else do we see? Anything else? Oh, we should just simply point out this then, that the work, who is doing the doing in the Lord's Supper? Well, as we'll see, it's Christ who's taking the the bread and taking the cup and giving them to us. So Christ is doing the doing according to his own words. But this picture is so beautiful because Christ is doing the doing. Where does that blood in the cup come from? Only by his labor and work on our behalf on the cross. And so it all flows from his doing on the cross to his pouring that into the chalice to his giving us that chalice to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. So in this we see that it is all Christ doing the doing. It's not our work, it's not our remembrance, it's not our sacrifice, it's not anything like that. It's his gift to us. We see that the forgiveness, as with baptism, as with absolution, the forgiveness that we receive in this cup is the same forgiveness he wins for us on the cross. It's not a different forgiveness. We're not setting up some kind of horizontal economy of forgiveness where baptism forgives all your sins up until the moment of your baptism and and if you sin after that, you're on your own. And then absolution is for the really, really bad sins, the mortal sins. You've got to go and do your penance and get absolution. And then once you've got those taken care of and you're reconciled, you can come to the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper only forgives your venial or lesser sins. That horizontal economy of the sacraments is Roman Catholicism. 
And indeed, it's not even the teaching of the Western Church. It's part of where Roman Catholicism itself ceased to be the Western Church and became its own denomination. So as we show forth uh, this reality that it is the same forgiveness of sins, one on the cross, distributed and bestowed through all the sacraments, albeit in in different shapes and different forms and different ways, it's that vertical from the cross through these means to us. And that's why they're sometimes called the means of the Spirit or the means of grace. What Christ did on the cross is given and communicated to us through these things, word and sacrament. Does that make sense? So we see that in this picture as well. That's why I love the pictures. Picture's worth a thousand words, isn't it? Yeah. Church filled with beautiful stained glass, even if the sermon's terrible, you're edified because the stained glass is preaching to you and teaching to you. It was one of the great joys I thought I, I found growing up in the church. Not that the sermons were boring. I certainly can't say that. Um, I also can't say it because my dad was the pastor. <laughs> He'll get on a plane back out here and let me have it. But, but one of the great joys I recall was um, looking at the artwork in the church and having no clue what it meant. You know, what are these interlocking, overlapping circles? And what's the triangle behind it? And what's that weird XP thing? And so on and so forth. But these are great and wonderful mysteries, and they draw our attention into them, and they remind us, and they actively engage our minds, um, reminding us of what we've been taught by the Word. So I think a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's why I love these pictures in the Catechism. All right, any questions initially? Are we okay? Let's dive into the material with an eye towards simplicity. So again, this is as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. So what I'm doing right now is actually kind of alien to the intent of the catechism itself. That's one of the ironies when the pastor teaches the catechism, particularly the small catechism. It's one of the ironies. The catechism, is, if it had a life of its own, it could speak, would say, what are you doing? Put me into the hands of the fathers in your parish and make them teach me to their households. That's my proper role and task. So this is always a conundrum on the back and shoulders of a pastor is, well, if I don't do this, they may not have it at all. But if I do do this, then they may not. Neither of which is okay. (laughs) So we're trying to thread the needle here, trying to teach it to you, heads of the household, so that you can teach it to your families all year long, year round. All right. First things first, what is the sacrament of the altar? And already here in the language, you might, be, you might be noticing some strangeness. So the sacrament of the altar is the same thing as the Lord's Supper. It's the same thing as Holy Communion. It's the same thing as the Eucharist. These are all different names for the same thing. Churches for a very, very long time, probably in one way, shape, or form, going all the way back to the beginning, have had altars. And so the sacrament, um, sacramentum is Latin, and it comes from the Greek word mysterion. And so this mysterion, or mystery, is exactly as the apostles, as Jesus and the apostles give it to us, as these things are mysteries. And then uh, in the West, they become sacraments. And so they come to us. Now, a mystery doesn't mean like, oh, I can't know anything about it. A mystery knows, it means this, that you can know something about it, but your knowledge can simply never 
become comprehensive. A mystery in the Christian faith is something you can know about, know more about, know more about. Finally, after maturity, know a great deal about, and you still go, I don't know this whole thing. I'm not even close. In fact, now I know enough to know I'll never know. (laughs) And that's how the sacraments are. They're mysteries of God. And um, they're part and parcel of other mysteries of God. The Holy Trinity is a mystery of God. The divine and human nature of Christ is a mystery of God. The nature of his death on the cross for us is a mystery of God. The working of the Holy Spirit to create faith in our hearts and sustain that faith in our hearts is a mystery of God. Baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper are all mysteries of God in this very broad and general sense. Now when we start to say sacrament, as theology moves along, we start to narrow that language down into chiefly three things. We talk about baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. And sometimes absolution gets omitted from that for long, detailed, historical, and Augustinian reasons I won't go into. But that's why, depending on who you ask as a Lutheran, do we have two sacraments or three? Boy, I may tell you one answer on Monday and a different answer on Tuesday. So it doesn't matter, in other words. But the sacrament of the altar, an altar is a place of sacrifice. And so that in and of itself is confessing that what we're receiving is the sacrifice that Jesus made once and for all on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he's making that very sacrifice present for us so that it gives to us all the blessings and benefits. Does that make sense? It's not us re presenting that sacrifice. It's not us re-sacrificing Christ. It's not a us-to-God thing at all. It is a God-to-us thing. It is Christ making present his body and blood, once and for all given on the cross, but present now for us to receive, to eat, and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, so that's why sacrament of the altar, intimately connected with the crucifixion of Jesus. How else do we know this? Well, by one simple fact that he says with two different actions, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. His body and blood are two different things. Now, that's not the case for me. My body and blood are very much one thing. If you were to separate my body from my blood right now, I would be dead. So we know that it is the sacrifice that we are receiving simply by this dual action where he says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. This harkens back to the Old Testament language of the blood needing to be drained from the sacrifices. These two things are separate. So when Christ gives us these two things as separate things that we receive, we can be certain that we're receiving the sacrifice he made on the cross. It's also why St. Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. Yeah, his death until he comes. Part of our liturgy at present right now. All right, so what is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood. Now, why is that word true there? Because it's there to replace any attempt to make it symbolic or metaphorical or allegorical or imaginary or any other nonsense. That's why the word true there is there. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Now, what is meant by under the bread and wine? Does that mean if you 
pick up the piece of bread, he's going to be under there? No. Does it mean if you pick up the cup, he's going to be under there? Or pour out the wine, he's going to be under the wine? No. It's saying under the form. Now, we don't really think in these terms anymore, but in the medieval church, they thought much more philosophically than we do. And it means to say that what you see with your eye is just going to be bread. And that's true even if you put it under a microscope. You're still seeing it with your eye. What you see when you put uh, it is just wine. It's going to be true even if you zoom all the way in with a microscope. Okay. But what is hidden therein, what is under these visible forms, is in fact the true body and blood of Christ. Okay. Makes sense? I mean, insofar as it goes. <laughs> None of this ultimately makes sense, of course. It's simply what Christ gives us, and we confess it and believe it. We can't get too mathematical about all this, but we can defend ourselves from errors. So it is um, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. And so that that word instituted means it needs to be in keeping and in accord with our Lord's institution. This is one of the reasons why online communion doesn't work. Um, If you've done it, don't kick yourself too hard. I absolve you. Uh, don't do it again. <laughs> so it's one of the reasons why it doesn't, because Christ didn't institute it. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, get on the other end of a, com- a, a computer screen a, a million miles away and take up your own bread and take up your own wine and the pastor will do it and somehow this will all work out. It, it's not in keeping with his institution. His institution is a reality where he and his disciples are all present together. That's an essential part of Holy Communion. It's a part of, it's an essential part of his institution. Okay, so we need to be careful of that. We need to pay attention to that word instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Because if we're, if we're trying to do it in some way that is not in keeping with his institution, we lose the supper and we're just deceiving ourselves. Make sense? Okay. Now, where is this written? And here we're simply going to take uh, the, different, the different accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul. Now, St. Paul speaks explicitly about the Lord's Supper, quoting the words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 10 is often also considered part of that because he does some explicit teaching on the Lord's Supper. But strictly speaking, 1 Corinthians 11, and then the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, if you ever compare these things, there are some slight differences. You know, almost as if, like, if we went down to Dana Point and watched the Christmas boat parade as it goes around the harbor, and then we were all to give a brief account of what that is, I would omit certain things and add certain things. You would omit certain things and add certain things. But there are common and core elements that would be there no matter what. I saw boats. (laughs) Right? So we see the same thing with the eyewitness testimonies of the Lord's Supper that they're recorded slightly differently. So if you compare and contrast these accounts, they're eyewitness accounts. There's a commonality between all of them. There's a distinction between all of them. Um, Paul, of course, has received his uh, directly from the Lord. Now, when you take all of these different elements and kind of smash them together so that nothing is left out, that's what we have here. It's called a conflation. 
And this is our liturgical formula for the Lord's words. Now, we could just as easily use in divine service the words of, recorded in Matthew or Mark or Luke or St. Paul, but for the sake of having it all together, this is what we have. Does that make sense? All right, so we're wedding those four testimonies together into this one statement. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. All right, what do we know about it? It's about the most solemn and formal and pinnacle kind of moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is part and parcel of his very last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So we have a sense that this is not a time where he's doing frivolous or lighthearted. I don't think Jesus ever does frivolous, but he's not just teaching them any old thing. This is the central and most important thing. This is, in a sense, my last will and testament to you. It's the night on which he's betrayed, so it's a night filled with seriousness and gravity. It also happens to be in the middle of, do you know? Passover. So everything is also shaded in terms of Passover. Now, in, pas- in the Passover meal, the central piece of the Passover meal is the Passover lamb would be eaten. Okay. This is why St. Paul says of Jesus that he is our Passover lamb. A Passover lamb has two jobs. Be slain and be eaten. Those are your two jobs. So when Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb, He's slain and he's eaten. Why is the Passover lamb slain? Not just for food, but why in the context of the Passover? Yes, to save the firstborn from death, hearkening all the way back to the tenth and final plague before they leave Egypt. Okay, so the angel of death passes over on account of the death of the lamb, his flesh being consumed, and what of his blood? His blood put on the doorposts of the home. Okay, do you remember the mantra that would go along with the preparation of the Passover lamb? Not one of his bones must be broken. So as you're slaying the lamb, as you're preparing the lamb, you have to have the utmost care that his bones not be broken. A tangential thought that just popped into my mind, and you can take or leave this one, but Josephus, uh, an early church um, historian and, and Jew who has no real vested interest in Christianity, says of the Passover lamb at this time that the way they would prepare it um, is that they would place... The, so. It's a little, I mean, you know, it's eating, okay? Food doesn't come from Costco. Uh, It it has its origins in a butcher shop, and some of this is rather graphic. But, okay, so what they would do is they would spit the lamb running from head down to the entrails, and then they would bind arms and legs on either side in the form of a cross. So this is a poignant detail given to us from an extra-biblical source at the time who has no vested interest in buttressing anything of the Christian message. Again, take it or leave it. 
It's not authoritative, but it's interesting. So the lamb is slain and eaten and his blood is shed and poured out so that the angel will see the blood and pass over. Now, the shocking thing uh, about this event, this night, is not necessarily that Jesus, whom John the Baptist already pointed to and said, this is the Lamb of God. Not that Jesus necessarily says, take, eat, this is my body. That would make sense if he's the Lamb of God, if he's the Passover Lamb. But when he takes the cup, again, back to the cup and says, drink of this, all of you. This is the blood of the New Testament. That's the shocking thing. Because the blood doesn't go on the, out, on the doorposts of the building they're in. It goes where? On the doorpost of your body. It's not just for the firstborn within the house. It's for you that the angel of death would pass over you. And along with that mantra of don't break one of its bones, not one of the lamb's bones can be broken. Isn't that interesting how John plays this in the, nativ- or in the Passion, how he shows us that um, Christ uh, is hanging there with the three others and they go to break the bones? It's like the most dramatic moment in the gospel if, you, if you're looking at this, like is, is Christ the Passover lamb or not? Is he accepted by God or not? Um, they go and they break the bones uh, the, of the legs of the first insurrectionist. They pass by him. Why? I mean, why? There is no human reason. There's a, there's a divine reason because God had prophesied that he is the Passover lamb and that not one of his bones would be broken. So the Roman soldier, for whatever reasons, goes right past Jesus, breaks the legs of the other. He comes up to Jesus to break his legs. And if you know all this, you're holding your breath because if the legs are broken, this isn't the Passover lamb and he's not the one who fulfills the scripture Not one of his bones shall be broken. But instead of swinging, he sets it down and takes a spear, thus fulfilling not one of his bones will be broken, and pierces his side, thus fulfilling they will look upon him whom they pierced. Incredible, incredible moment. All right, so when, um, sorry for that little tangent, but back to the upper room, back to the Passover, Uh, when he takes the cup of blood and says, drink of this, all of you, it's first, it would go on outside the house, but now it's going into us. That's a difference. But there's something else, because along with that mantra, not one of the lamb's bones should be broken, is another. The blood and the body must be separated. We don't consume, we don't drink the blood. Why? The life is in the blood. And so all the way from Leviticus, 1,500 years earlier, all the way through, there's this perpetual mantra of don't drink the blood. The life is in the blood. What are all the pagans doing? Well, the same thing they do now. They're drinking the blood of animals and their enemies and everything else because they think they're getting that life and strength and power. And that's disgusting. And God doesn't want anything to do with that. But he's got a plan. No blood for you all the way through. Don't drink the blood. Don't drink the blood. Don't drink the blood. The life is in the blood. And then Jesus says, drink my blood. Why? Because the life, capital T, capital L, the life is in his blood. It's all been prepared for this very moment. So again, what I hope you're starting to see too is that it's not as though Jesus was kind of 
walking by the lake one day thinking, well, my cross is coming pretty soon. I better find one last thing to confuse the disciples with. I'm gonna, this is going to tell them the wildest thing I can think of, that this bread is my body and this, this wine is my blood, and they're going to drink it for the forgiveness of their sins. I'm going to hope that they make some sort of sense out of this, maybe via an object lesson. You know, the bread kind of looks like my skin and the, the wine kind of looks like my blood. It'll be an, it'll be an object lesson for adults. <laughs> these, these things that are modern and people actually think today are so completely contrary uh, and so distant from the context, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament context. It's just astonishing. It. Um, he is tying into the deepest roots of the Old Testament. And we're going to reflect on that for just a, a brief minute too. And that's Adam and Eve fell by eating, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Um, okay, God gets sick of Adam and Eve and that whole generation. There's a giant flood and there's a new Adam, so to speak, Noah. And as soon as he's off the ark, he sins by what? Drinking. Take drink, this is my blood. Eating and drinking. And of course, um, yeah, well, that's all I'm going to do. So this, this goes all the way back to Genesis, this theology. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And then in Exodus is the Passover. So this is as old as the Old Testament. This theology has been laid out by God and is now fulfilled by Christ. All right, so it's our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed, before they had gone out to the garden. And he takes bread. This is unleavened bread, which is why the church tends to use unleavened bread. It doesn't ultimately matter. It's why our, our, the bread we consume here is flat. It's unleavened. And when he had given thanks, now that's the Greek word for Eucharist. So his giving thanks is why it's sometimes called the Eucharist. Now he took the bread and he broke it prior to saying anything. So the breaking of the bread is not a symbolic act. It doesn't have anything to do with the breaking of his body. Again, we just covered why that can't be the case. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's not about his body broken, except in a sort of poetic sense, I guess. But better to just be clear on that. The Lord Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it in order to distribute it. So one loaf given to the others, that they may all be one. And that's why that's 1 Corinthians 10. That's why we call it communion. And then he says, take, eat. He gives them the bread, tells them to eat it. And he says this, of course, the bread, is my body. Now, there's a Greek word for symbolize. It's just not here. It's essence. It's is. So take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. The only thing hidden there a little bit, um, huper is the word for for, and that's on behalf of or for the sake of. So for you can just mean a little more generic, a little more one-dimensional in English. Um, in Greek, there's this sense of which it's given over to you for your behalf, for your benefit, kind of carrying the parallel weight that's going to come with the cup. Then he says, this do in remembrance of me. What do in remembrance of him? The whole thing. This last line, and you can see, I don't know if it's obnoxious to you or not, I hope not, but this is why when I do the words of institution in the divine service, I usually take a brief pause before I continue with this do in remembrance of me. Because it's not simply a run-on sentence. Jesus has done the action of the supper. The institution proper is when he says, this do, what? All of it. And do it in remembrance of me. Okay. Now, um, in remembrance doesn't mean obviously an intellectual thing because there's eating and drinking and all of this other stuff. And I always have a story, you know, a cute little story I made up about, um, you know, my wife saying, "Hey, did you remember it's Mother's Day?" Oh yeah, I remembered. 
several times. Well, what are we going to do? Well, do? I was just supposed to remember, and I remembered. I mean, is that, is that what remembering means? Obviously not. Uh, so remembering here means doing something, celebrating something, enjoying and consummating something. And so this do in remembrance of me is to partake and eat of that sacrifice which he freely gives. All right? In the same way also, that is in the same ceremonial way. It's not any different. It's not flippant. It's not trite. He took the cup, singular. That's why for about 1,900 years in the church, there was nothing but the chalice. Now, if it's a huge chalice, you might have multiple chalices to, so that communion doesn't take five hours to distribute. But um, it, it has always been the cup. In the um, 20th century, we got scared of germs. Uh, and then we got individual cups. And it's not great. I mean, is it still the blood you're receiving? Yes. But it's, but it's a change, even if stylistically. Um, and it's worth co- your consideration. I'm not trying to bind anyone's conscience here. But it's worth your consideration. Just as there's one loaf given to all, there's one cup given to all. And elsewhere, it's, it's not even the cup. It's his cup. So there's a theology going on that his cup is for each one of us and all of us together. The individual cup can give, I'm not accusing anyone, can give the impression that this is his cup given for me, and it's just me and my Jesus up here, which would be a bad communion. <laughs> that would be like, no, you're, yeah, you're kind of not getting it at all. Okay. He makes us one with him, us, thus one with one another, one with him. All right, so he took the cup after supper. Um, oh, why else does it have to be one cup, the cup, his cup? Remember when he goes into the garden just a few minutes later? What does he pray? Take this cup away from me. What cup is he talking about? Old Testament texts say the cup of God's wrath stored up for the earth and the nations. So what's happening? That cup which these disciples and all of us deserve, that cup of wrath that is our cup, and that cup of blessing, life, and salvation that is his cup, and he takes his cup and says, drink of this. And in so doing, he has to take that cup which is ours, and, he, and that cup is with him in the garden. And that's the cup he has to consume. So there's a swap of cups here. And that's also why the singular cups are so important to see. All right. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, again, that's where we get Eucharist from. He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Okay, remember the Old Testament, because he uses the word new. What's the Old Testament? Sinai, Moses, thunder and lightning. What ratified the Old Testament? There was blood. Do you remember what it is? The blood of the bulls that were sprinkled on the people. How would you like that? Show up in your Sunday best, expecting a nice time at the foot of Mount Sinai. and Now you've got laundry to do. And it's a little disgusting. So that was the old covenant in the blood of bulls. Now Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant, diatheke, the New Testament, in my blood. And here is the end of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament because he gives us his own blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now that word for you is plural. It's for all of us. 
But it comes to all of us and each one of us individually, so those words require our hearts to believe that it is, in fact, Jesus giving us his blood. So at the communion rail, I'm saying the blood of Jesus that he's given to me, to all of us. Okay. This do, and then here's the institution proper, this do as often as you drink it. There's no statement as to how often it has to be, but it is to be done often, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, remembrance isn't just sitting there like meditating on Jesus in our head and having some kind of object lesson, which turns the whole thing into our work toward God, where it's all dependent upon my remembrance and me doing and how I'm trying to connect the dots between the bread and that symbolizes his body and the wine that symbolizes it's all bottom up. Okay? And what we see here in the words of Jesus is that's just not what's going on. It's all top down. It's all gift. It's all Christ giving to us for us to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. You'll see here a distinct lack of anything that says we take this body and take this blood and re-offer it to God. She's simply not there. It's a sacrifice in the sense that Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. It's a sacrifice in the sense that you say, well, what is this body and this blood? It's a sacrifice. So it's a sacrifice as kind of like a noun, but it's not a sacrifice as, as if we, uh, it was a verb that we are doing. And that's the medieval sacrifice of the Mass. It actually continues today. But this is one of the things that Lutherans rejected because it's like, you turn the New Testament itself into our work by which we try to please God. That's horrible. Like the one thing he freely gives that is the cross directly to us as pure gift and grace, we have to turn into our work and offering to God? It can't be the case. So um, this really spells out the difference between uh, Roman Catholicism and the, the true Western church uh, of all ages. All right, so let's just power on a little further. Um, unless, unless you have any burning questions that I can answer real quickly, I'm happy to entertain those if you do. Um, otherwise, we'll just power along and close it up. I think it's, I think it's so warm in here. Yeah. I sensed like, like a computer that's slowly overheating. I'm getting slower and slower. I'll fight through it. In my memoirs, I'll call this teaching in purgatory. Pastor. Yes, please. Um, you've said that before, the argument about using the common cup versus individual cups. Yeah. Would the same argument be with using a single loaf as a opposed to the individual wafers. Yeah, in a sense. I think in a lesser sense, but yeah, it does. I think, the, I think the best practice would be to have a loaf that is in fact broken and received. You know, I catechize this another one of my favorite stories. I'm sorry for those of you who have heard it like 15 times already. But it's another one of my favorite stories in catechizing. Um, it's probably like 14 or 15, uh, maybe, um, maybe 13, I don't know. But catechizing her to take the Lord's Supper for the first time. And I got done with, with this whole talk, basically. And I said, do you have any questions? And she said, well, just one. Why don't we use bread? <laughs> she had an easier time believing that it was the body of Christ she was eating than believing that those little white things we have are bread. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're a little laminated. And that's meant to not have crumbs. But, you know, I think it would be better practice to have the one loaf distributed have the one cup distributed just as our Lord gave. So yes, right. The symbolism isn't quite as bad because they do all, I mean, when you put them all together, the breaking isn't a, 
he does break it so everybody gets their own individual peas, but you don't have an exact parallel with that in a cup. It's not as if he takes his cup and pours a little into everybody else's cup, right? So yes and no is the answer. Yeah. Okay, let's go a little further then. Top of 29, these words, now quoting Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, end quote, show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Now, this beautiful moment in Isaiah's gospel where he has this vision, uh, Isaiah's gospel, um, Isaiah, uh, he has this beautiful vision of the throne of God, the mercy seat of God, and the two seraphim. And he realizes he's in the presence of the living God, and he falls down on his face, and he says, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he makes his confession of sins. And one of the seraphim goes over to the altar, do you remember this? And plucks off the altar a coal and presses it to his lips. And instead of him being tortured, he's relieved. And the angel says, this, this has atoned for your sins. You are forgiven. So a beautiful parallel happens. This is why we sing what the archangels say, what the seraphim sing. I mean, they, they remember what they were saying when, when Isaiah saw it? Holy, holy, holy. That's why we have that in our communion hymnody. Holy, holy, holy. We sing that before communion because we realize that we're in the presence of the same God that Isaiah was in the presence of. It's not a seraphim who goes and grabs a coal from the altar. It's our Lord Jesus himself who goes and takes his body and blood from the altar and he touches them to our lips and says, your sins are atoned for, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, so, yeah, we believe it. And where the sins are taken away, death is taken away. Where death is taken away, hell is taken away. So we have life and salvation. How can bodily eating and drinking do such thing, great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. So our faith is bound to the words of Christ. And then who receives the sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. And this, unfortunately, in Lutheranism is poo-pooed as if Luther is saying, yeah, yeah, don't do this stuff. It's It's not right at all. Fasting is completely normative to not eat anything from dinner to the Lord's Supper. It's completely normative. Now, if you can't handle that or you're a diabetic, or check with your doctor, of course. Not medical advice. But this is a common and standard practice of the church. That's what Luther is referring to in part when he says fasting. Okay, and bodily preparation. What would bodily preparation be? Well, in our context, bodily preparation would be um, getting a good night's sleep the night before, not staying up all night playing video games and screeching into church, not, I mean, heaven forbid, coming into church hungover as you can be, coming into church underdressed. You know, I like to wear my pastoral high shorts, but I can't wear those for Holy Communion. No, bodily preparation means that you acknowledge what it is you're receiving and you prepare your body. Now, all of that is fine outward training. And Luther's not denigrating that at least. He's saying it's fine, it's important, it's meaningful, and it's good. But we're not yet at the heart and core of the thing. So fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. 
for the words for you require all hearts to believe. Yeah, you don't want to be in the position where Jesus is saying through the pastor, my body given for you, and you say, I don't think so. I think it's just symbolic. Or my blood shed for you, and you go, yeah, yeah. You don't want to be in that position. That's not a good spiritual position. This is why we practice close communion in part, why Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, basically everybody who's been Christian for longer than 15 minutes practices closed communion. Um, because we don't want that to be to the harm and detriment of someone. And St. Paul lays that out in 1 Corinthians 11, that wrongly eating or drinking the body and blood of Christ without discerning it can lead to sickness, weakness, even death as punishment. Okay, so then how do we commune worthily? Here is very quick, short pastoral advice for communing at Faith Lutheran Church or any other Lutheran uh, LCMS altar. Um, I am uh, very much human like you, and so I know how things go. And sometimes all you have to prepare your mind is last-minute preparation. And so it can help you to go like this. You can always build from this, but bare minimum. What is it that I'm receiving? Ask yourself that. Answer the body and blood of Christ. Why am I receiving it? For the forgiveness of sins. That's what he says. So those two questions, what is it? His body and blood. Why am I taking it? For the forgiveness of my sins. Are an essential kind of preparation. And if nothing else, if you can do nothing else in terms of examination before you go to the supper, examine that you're in faith, what it is and why you're receiving it. And by the way, if you come visit some um, Lutheran churches around the country, the pastor will want to talk to you before communion. Even if you say, oh, I go to Faith Lutheran Church and I know Pastor Rody, he's going to say, that's lovely. Um, Why do you want to go to communion? For the forgiveness of sins. What is it that you're receiving? there? The body and blood of Christ. If we can't answer those basic things, then we really have no business being there. So, very good things to refresh and keep in your mind. My friends, I did the best I could. We burned through it. It's 1016. Let's be finished. The Lord be with you.